Thank you, Judge Forrest, and may it please the court. I'm Scott Angstreich for Appellants, and I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal. The question before this court is whether interstate broadband service will continue to be governed by a single national set of rules, or instead will, for the first time, face a patchwork of conflicting state regulation. If California were correct, interstate broadband providers could have to apply up to 50 different sets of rules when carrying the same Netflix shows or Zoom calls or national news to their customers in different states. But the Communications Act established, in this court's words, a strict separation between interstate and intrastate jurisdiction, or in the Eighth Circuit's more colorful terms, a fence between the two that is hog-tight, horse-high, and bull-strong. And as the Supreme Court noted, Congress gave the FCC plenary authority over the services on the interstate side of that fence. Now, exercising that statutory authority, the FCC decided that relying on Title I of the Act is the best way to promote broadband deployment and ensure an open Internet, and it decided further that the Act's other statutory tools, Title II, Section 706, harm that broadband deployment and aren't necessary to ensure an open Internet. Now, this court has already held, and it's in California v. FCC from 1994, that when the FCC regulates interstate services under Title I, state regulation of intrastate services is preempted when it undermines the Title I interstate regime. But here, Your Honors, the conflict is even starker than it was there, because by copying the FCC's broadband definition, California is regulating the same interstate service as the FCC and imposing on it the very rules that the FCC rejected. The D.C. Circuit's Mozilla decision doesn't support what California is doing here. That court faced an express preemption directive that, in its words, ordinary conflict preemption principles could not salvage because it swept broader than those principles would allow. This court insisted that Mozilla said it couldn't begin to answer whether a particular state's law undermines the portions of the 2018 order that court upheld as lawful exercises of the FCC's statutory authority. When the court said that, if you look at the paragraph that appears in, it was talking about and responding to the dissent's assertion that the majority's vacater of that broad-sweeping express preemption directive rendered the FCC's classification decision a nullity, or, as Judge Hurley noted, in finding New York to be preempted from regulating interstate broadband providers, that the FCC so misunderstood the Communications Act that in its effort to shield broadband providers and their interstate services from common carrier regulation, it actually opened up the door to 50 different states independently deciding whether or not to do that. Because California's law undermines those portions of the order, and the DCs are confirmed are within the FCC's statutory authority to choose, and moreover, because it conflicts with Congress's decisions in the Act itself, the court should hold that the law is preempted and should reverse the district court's denial of our preliminary injunction motion. The district court's first error was to read the 2018 order as a decision by the FCC that it lacked authority to regulate. Well, counsel, isn't the DC Circuit's decision in Mozilla a holding that 
by reclassifying to Title I, the agency no longer had authority to preempt in the manner that it had preempted. That's correct, Your Honor, and I think the last part of what you said is the important part, in the manner that it preempted. Because if we look at paragraph 195 of the 2018 order, the FCC doesn't just say that states would be preempted from imposing, and I'm reading here, rules or requirements that the agency repealed, and that's what California has done here in its law, but also from taking any action with respect to any aspect of broadband service that they address in the order. And that goes well beyond conflict preemption. As the D.C. Circuit said in its opinion, and this is at page 81, when the FCC said, well, principles of conflict preemption would get us to the same place. And the court said that whatever intuitive appeal that argument has evaporated when the FCC's counsel admitted at argument that what the FCC was doing in the order wasn't merely saying this is what ordinary principles of conflict preemption would get us to, but acknowledged that it was meant to go beyond that. Moreover, the D.C. Circuit noted that conflict preemption isn't handed out in gross, and so the court couldn't begin to say as a categorical matter that everything a state might possibly do, and this is important too, as to intrastate broadband, would definitely be preempted. This court did the same thing in 1990, Your Honor, when the FCC similarly tried to pair Title I authority with a sweeping preemption directive. And this court said, well, the FCC's got to defend the entirety of it, and the fact that some of it might be defensible on conflict preemption grounds doesn't save the whole thing. But then in 1994, Judge Schroeder, you wrote this opinion, when the FCC came back with a narrower one and New York said, well, look, this is Title I, there can't be any preemption. This court said that position must be rejected. And there... Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just, I'm struggling with the fact that what they did was reclassify these services. And what is the preemptive authority that flows from saying that these are no longer, by the reclassification to Title I? Sure, Your Honor. So the FCC walking into the 2018 order has, from D.C. Circuit decisions and the Supreme Court's Brand X decision, has the authority to choose from among a variety of statutory tools for addressing broadband. And the decision about how to address broadband or how to address their precursor services has never been a dry technocratic question, but it's always been a results-oriented approach. What's the best way to regulate this kind of service? And assuming that the statute can reasonably be read to allow it, that's the one the agency has chosen. So counsel... The agency did that in 2015. Yes, Judge Forrest. I mean, I'm struggling with that. I mean, I'm new to this, but that's not how statutes typically work, right? I mean, we have defined categories that Congress has set in a law. And I don't read this statute to say that whichever category you want to be in is a policy choice, because those categories are specifically defined in the statute. So how is this just a policy choice as opposed to the FCC looking at this industry, the facts of this industry, how it works, and figuring out which box it belongs in? Sure, Your Honor. So if we look at U.S. Telecom, the D.C. Circuit's decision upholding the FCC's decision to put broadband in the Title II box, 
What the D.C. Circuit says at page 707 is that the FCC found it necessary to establish per se common carrier rules for broadband and that that was the reason and perfectly good one in the D.C. Circuit's words for choosing the Title II box. Indeed, the FCC in footnote 993 of the 2015 order says, because of our view that common carrier rules are required, we would classify broadband as a Title II service, even if we didn't think any fact had changed since 2002 when we first addressed the services. So this has never been a question about dry technocratic, and this makes it very different from the kinds of cases that California is citing, like Arkansas Electric Power or Pacific Gas and Energy. Those were cases, now, now they predated Chevron, but in Chevron language, those were Chevron step one cases, where the agency concluded that in the case of rural electric power cooperatives, that Congress had just given an entirely different agency the power to address those, or in the case of the um, Atomic Energy Commission, that the question whether a particular state needed more power plants just wasn't something that was within the agency's purview as a result of Congress's decision. Here, we are squarely within the Chevron space where an agency has delegated statutory authority to choose based on its view of the best policy. And that's what the D.C. Circuit upheld. And when Judge Williams said, well, we know you upheld that, but by vacating the preemption decision, what you've done is allow every state to come in and undo what you just upheld, pointing, I'll point out at page 95 of the opinion, to the very California law we're talking about, the D.C. Circuit's response wasn't, well, we've left that open, or you're, you know, you're right, Judge Williams. It was, that's a straw man. And I don't think you can fairly read that opinion to say anything other than the problem with what the FCC had done was that it went well beyond conflict preemption and tried to strike down anything a state might do in this area. The FCC exercised delegated statutory authority when it decided what the right regime was. And as Brand X holds, this is not an area where there's a vacuum. The FCC continues to have authority over broadband service under Title I. It exercised that authority in creating its transparency regime. And Mozilla does not suggest the states are free when it comes to interstate broadband to, un well, to upend that. Let me ask you this, counsel. Um, we're dealing here with the California statute, but California has a number of, um, uh, of uh, uh, other statutes uh, aimed at consumer protection. If, uh, if assuming that um, the, now that the preemption um, order is gone, uh, but suppose that we agree with you and the statute is held to be uh, preempted. Um, but uh, someone sues in California under California law saying that a certain blocking um, effort by uh, 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 one of the broadband carriers is, um, is, is a, violates the consumer protection laws and is an unfair business practice. Is that, uh, an, uh, would that be preempted? So your honor, if I understand you correctly, if what the claim is, is that my broadband provider in its transparency rule disclosures said it's not engaging oh, no. in blocking. Uh, it was uh, the, the, not, not, not out, totally outside the disclosures uh, that there was engaged in some practice of blocking or 
or charging or doing something that was, uh, was unfair and violated the state's consumer protection laws. If I understand it, the, the, the Mozilla uh, decision says, well, the, the consumer protection laws are still there. Right, but They're, the consumer protection laws, sorry, are. Yeah, okay. The consumer laws that are still there are those that enforce providers' promises, right? If providers want to block, the federal regime says they have to disclose that publicly and transparently. And if a provider says, as virtually every provider has said, we are not going to block, and then blocks, no, it would not be preempted for there to be a state law claim to enforce that promise. But what California's law is trying to do, and, and a hypothetical state court suit, I suppose, could do, is try to change providers' services and say, I know you've said you're blocking and you are actually operating in conformance with your policies, but you should have different ones because we state think that your interstate service should be offered differently. And that's what would be preempted, um, whether it's as a matter of tort law or unfair competition law or through statutory directives. Um, I, I see my time is running out. I would like, I'm happy to answer more questions, um, but I would like- I've to got something that I think, I've got something that bothers me, if you wouldn't mind me getting one in. Uh, this, this is a review of a preliminary injunction that was entered so that there would be no action taken until a final determination by the district court, correct? It's a review of the denial of that motion, but yes, that's correct, Your Honor. So for over 30 years, we've been advising counsel uh, uh, that we should not worry about preliminary injunctions, but go ahead and move forward with the case and let us have it on the final appeal, starting with sports forum and on. What, what has been done by way of of uh, discovery, et cetera, uh, since this preliminary injunction was entered in? Sure, Your Honor. California has served discovery, including on uh, non-parties to the case. But I, I think as a practical matter, and we see this um, in the New York case, where after the preliminary injunction was entered, New York agreed to the entry of final judgment. I understand. Um, as, I to understand. The, as to the preemption claims, there really isn't a factual record to develop. Either... The order has the preemptive effect, we say. The Communications Act has the preemptive effect, we say, or it doesn't. There really isn't a factual record to be developed as to that. I suspect that there'll be factual determinations on the other side. There's been no stipulation that there will be no more discovery after it, this case goes back that I saw that, in the correct. record. Okay. That, that, Is this, so why, why should we have – why should we invest all of our time – when we've told you don't rely on any any decision we make, go back and get the case ready for us and come up. Why should we uh, determine this issue? Why not just make a decision on an unpublished disposition, which cannot be cited below, and get back to where we've constantly asked to go? I'm, I'm not being critical with you. We see these cases come up all the time. But we think our time is limited, too, and we've had a series of cases directing counsel not to come up on these preliminaries, but get the case decided and let us have it on a permanent injunction. Why shouldn't we enforce that? Why should we get to that question here? What, what, what is the benefit of us asking you to go back and do what we've asked you to do before? Sure, Your Honor. So two reasons. First, because the preliminary injunction motion was denied. My clients are facing the very harms and will continue to face the very harms we identified in the declarations 
submitted with our motion, along with the harms from the violation of the supremacy clause uh, that we think exists. So waiting until a final judgment when the state is not enjoined um, creates real and pressing harms. And then the second is that at least as to these preemption issues, and we have a dormant commerce clause claim, um, which does, we recognize, require factual development, but at least as to these preemption questions, that you know, we don't think there's any factual development left to be done there. The district court's opinion doesn't suggest that there's factual development left to be done there. Um, so we think those legal questions are ripe and well presented. To the so there's going to be, be no discuss, more discovery in this case as far as you're concerned? On the Dormant Commerce Clause claim, there is, and California has served uh, quite extensive discovery yeah. that we think goes to that to that claim. But on the preemption claim, we don't think there's discovery to be done now. Mm. Okay, thank you. And the harm persists. All right, counsel, we'll give you a little bit of time to respond after I, uh, I, your opposing counsel. I appreciate counsel. that. Thank you. Good morning. May it please the court. Patty Lee for Defendant California Attorney General Rob Bonta. California's net neutrality law prevents broadband providers from favoring or discriminating against internet traffic. It prohibits, it, it prohibits practices like blocking, throttling, or setting up paid fast lanes for certain content. Without these essential protections, broadband providers can discriminate against content providers they disagree with or charge them fees for reaching internet users. No one can doubt the central importance of fair and open access to the internet in this day and age during a global pandemic that has pushed so many activities online and in the midst of so many extreme climate events and wildfires when immediate access to information can be a matter of life or death. States are the primary protectors of public health and safety, and they do not need prior federal authorization when exercising their historic police powers to protect consumers, especially when it comes to a basic necessity like access to the internet. Now, there is no conflict between California's net neutrality law and the 2018 order. Uh, as made clear in the order, it reflects a lack of authority to, for the FCC to uh, impose net neutrality protections. Council, I want to jump in on that. Do you agree with um, Council for ACA that the FCC's decision about whether to be under Title I or Title II is a policy decision? Well, it may reflect the agency's policy judgment, but that does not mean that that decision has preemptive effect. The preemptive effect of the classification decision flows from the statute itself. It is not controlled by the policy preferences of the agency. What the statute but, so, is, let, so if I take you back then, let's, for purposes of this question, assume that we conclude it's a policy decision, which box to be in then in terms of whether what California is doing conflicts with that 2018 rule or order, um, there's a direct conflict, right? Because there's a total different policy approach. So if we well, agree that that's a policy decision, how is there not a conflict? Well, I think the fact that it is a policy decision actually weakens the, the preemption argument because it is quite clear that an agency cannot regulate based on policy preferences alone, and certainly there can be no preemptive effect based on policy preferences alone. The policy preference must be within the scope of the statutorily authorized regulatory action at issue. Um, and, and that is uh, because it is the statute that controls. Here, Congress has given uh, the FCC two choices with respect to broadband. 
It can be regulated as a Title II service subject to extensive common carrier regulation, um, or it can be regulated as a Title I service where the FCC only has ancillary authority. That means it must identify some other portion of the statute uh, if it wants to, as a basis for, for regulating broadband when it is a Title I service. And it is only you know, with that type of link, uh, direct link to some other portion of the statute um, that the agency can lawfully regulate broadband. Uh, and here there has been no such action that actually conflicts with uh, California's net neutrality law. Um, and, and so the, the classification decision, it, it really is, is not meant to be a way for the agency to revise the statute to get around the basic limits uh, or the basic structure set up um, in the Title II versus Title I choice, um, and to allow the agency to, to simply express its policy preferences um, and, and say that it is the policy that, that preempts because they, they want to pursue a policy of deregulation. Well, the, what they have chosen um, is Title I regulation. Under Title I, the agency can't even uh, impose net neutrality protections. So it is impossible for the agency to, to then preempt the states from, from enacting that. Um, Council, what did Mozilla, what did the DC Circuit say about policy, policy uh, having preemptive effect? Did it say something? Yes, the, the, in Mozilla, um, there was quite an extensive discussion of the FCC's argument that it had authority for the express preemption uh, directive. And um, the, it, Mozilla went through quite extensively um, you know, various policy-based arguments. Um, the, the agency cited uh, Section 230 and, and various other sections um, that were uh, found to be general statements of policy and not sources of regulatory authority. And so uh, Mozilla quite clearly establishes that, that an agency's policy preferences are not enough. What you need is statutory authority to take the regulatory action that itself conflicts with whatever um, the state law at issue is. And here, the only uh, statutory uh, action, the only regulatory action um, that the FCC uh, claimed ancillary authority for in the 2018 order was the transparency rule. It cited a provision of the um, Communications Act requiring uh, the agency to provide a report to Congress about barriers to entry uh, in, the, in the market for providing telecommunications and information services. Um, the FCC used that statutory hook to uh, impose the transparency rule. Um, which requires broadband providers to disclose certain practices. Um, and that is not sufficient for enacting net neutrality protections as the agency recognized in the 2018 order. Um, and it certainly is not uh, enough for the agency to take any action that, that would uh, conflict with California's net neutrality law. Council, and the Comcast uh, decision by the DC circuit expressly um, you know, addresses this argument that the transparency uh, that the reporting requirement could be the basis for any kind of you know substantive regulation of broadband. Council, so that argument has been I have a question I want to ask you about this. Anyway, um, in your view, is there a way for the FCC to have a non-regulatory approach be preemptive? Uh, it's 
It's not clear that it is possible to classify a service as a Title I service and then preempt the states. So I understand that. So if, I understand your argument that they can't do it under Title I. My question is, do you think there's a way they can do it? That the federal, at the federal level, they can decide as a policy matter, it's better to not regulate, and we want that to have preemptive effect. What they can do, if, if that is the, the policy um, objective, they can classify uh, broadband as a Title II service. Um, that does come with certain uh, requirements in terms of regulations that, that generally should be imposed on common carriers. Um, the FCC can then go through um, the appropriate administrative procedures and rulemaking to then decide to forbear and, and refrain from imposing certain requirements. If it does that, uh, the statute explicitly provides in Title II that states cannot then step in and decide to reimpose those same uh, requirements. So they can de they could deregulate uh, if they retained their authority under Title II. Uh, to a to a certain extent, I'm I'm not saying that it's possible to completely leave broadband without regulation while it is subject to Title II, um, and that is simply you know inherent in the in the nature of the statute. And and if there are limits to what the FCC can do in interpreting the statute, it, it cannot actually interpret the, the statute to to rearrange the basic structure that that Congress imposed, for example. Um, and so for, for the reasons I have discussed, we, we don't think that the uh, 2018 order presents any kind of conflict. Um, in terms of the, um, I'm sorry, was there a question? In, in terms of the, uh, the arguments about, about the Communications Act, um, establishing a, a wall between interstate and intrastate services, um, the field preemption argument really has no support in the case law uh, and is quite contrary to Supreme Court precedent um, that recognizes this concept of ancillary authority um, that requires the FCC to identify uh, specific statutory responsibilities when it is regulating um, other things that are not expressly provided for. Uh, and, and the cases, um, the language that the council has cited from, from uh, this court's precedents in, in the California BFCC litigation, um, you know, those cases really stand for the proposition that preemption, even of, of a Title I service, preemption of state regulation of a Title I service is possible, but only when supported by ancillary authority, only when the regulatory action that's, that the agency took is supported by ancillary authority. Um, and so the, the statements that the council has alluded to from, from those um, California cases uh, really uh, is, is not accurate in terms of um, what the significance of those cases um, is. Um, there was uh, also a, a question about, or a discussion about the, the New York um, case in which the district court has enjoined uh, a, a New York regulation of broadband. Um, I think it's, it's quite clear that in that case, the district court uh, misunderstood the, the concept of ancillary authority and assumed that simply because uh, there is um, Title I, that, that simply because the FCC still has some authority over a Title I service, that excludes the states entirely from, from any sort of regulation of, of a Title I service. That is not the case. Um, that is, uh, you know, established in, in various Supreme Court cases. 
Um, and, and the ancillary authority uh, kind of inherent in the structure of statute uh, was established in Supreme Court precedent dating back to the 1960s and is still with us, has been repeatedly recognized by courts. Uh, and, and it seems that, that many of plaintiff's arguments here really fail to grapple with that, that basic concept. Counsel, what is your response to the, um, to the plaintiff's uh, argument that the FCC has plenary authority over interstate communications and this is a regulation of interstate regular uh, communication? Uh, the language regarding plenary authority is, again, taken out of context from, um, from that case, I believe the, the Louisiana case. Um, that case is about interstate telephone service. That is a Title II common carrier um, service. It does not establish that states are entirely excluded from all interstate regulation. The, again, going back to the, the basic structure of the act, it does um, recognize and provide for the possibility of FCC authority over interstate communication services. However, there needs to be something uh, explicit in the statute in Title II, Title III, or Title VI uh, that, that, author, that specifically authorizes the FCC to take regulatory actions with respect to those services. Otherwise, it is a Title I service and ancillary authority, a connection to Title II, Title III, or Title VI is required. Um, and so it, it is simply not correct that there is a bright line between interstate and intrastate service uh, that is drawn in the Communications Act. Uh, in fact, the, the better reading, I think, is, is that uh, when a service is Title I, uh, it, is, it is left open for um, both uh, the federal agency and for the states to regulate. However, the agency is limited by the, the Communications Act. States are not limited by the Communications Act unless there is some sort of, you know, express provision in the act that, that directly preempts or conflicts with state authority in that area or the agency has taken some kind of uh, regulatory action that uh, that conflicts with, with the state law. So, um, so the, the field preemption argument we think simply doesn't hold water. No court has recognized, no court of appeal certainly has recognized field preemption of all interstate communication services. Uh, and that was not even argued by the FCC in defense of its uh, attempt to preempt the states in the 2018 order. Um, I could address the, the argument that, um, that the Communications Act limit on the FCC's authority to regulate certain telecommunication carriers um, somehow limits the states. I think I can say very briefly that that uh, is not established anywhere, that there is there's um, precedent uh, showing that a, a limit on federal authority uh, is not necessarily a limit on state authority. Um, that's, the, that's the Whiting case. Um, and, uh, and that theory is, is also, again, contrary to the, the very concept uh, of, of ancillary authority that's inherent in, in the statute. Um, in terms of the, uh, the, the facts and, and uh, the harms, I think we think the district court correctly um, determined that the public interest weighs decisively in favor of defendants here. The California's net neutrality law is right now preventing broadband providers from deciding on their own to block content 
to, to throttle internet access. Um, doing those things has huge implications for public safety. Um, and and there, is, there are real harms that, that are being prevented by the fact that California now can enforce its net neutrality law. Um, and so we would just ask that the court affirm uh, the district court's uh, denial of the preliminary injunction motion. Um, we don't think there has been any clear error in determination of the facts, and we think um, the legal analysis is correct. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Um, I'll ask the clerk to put three minutes on the clock. Um, for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. As Ms. Lee acknowledged when she came back to it, this court has already held that an order by the FCC under Title I can have preemptive effect, and in fact that it can preempt states when they are regulating in the space that Section 152B preserved for them over intrastate services. And the Mozilla decision in more than half a dozen places identifies as the problem with what the FCC did, that it tread over that on a categorical basis without being able to show a conflict. It follows a fortiori from this court's decision in California that when a state copies the FCC's definition and tries to regulate the exact same service as the FCC in a way that the FCC has held is harmful to broadband deployment and unnecessary to internet openness that it's just as preempted as in California. California joined other states in arguing to the DC circuit that it was arbitrary and capricious for the FCC to conclude that you could protect the internet through a Title I transparency regime. And they lost that. And yet they've gone ahead and imposed the exact same regime that the FCC concluded should not. It would but they lost they lost that there was grinding Supreme Court precedent saying that this was a reasonable determination in brand X as I read what the DC circuit was saying. I agree. And because that binding Supreme Court decision is still in place, the FCC had statutory authority to conclude that the best way to do this was through Title I. And the notion that that opened up the door to the, each of the 50 states to decide on their own that they would prefer to regulate the exact same service defined in the exact same way violates the supremacy clause, just as it did when California tried to make intrastate Title I service providers to do something that the FCC thought shouldn't happen at the interstate level. Counsel, I mean, that, I, California. I think the argument would be easier for you if Title II is, you know, um, uh, an all-hands-on regulatory approach, and Title I is a light-touch regulatory approach, as uh, that language has been used by the parties. But Title I is a we-don't-have-authority-to-regulate approach. Yeah. Title I is not a we-don't-have-authority-to-regulate approach. With all due respect, Your Honor, Brand X makes clear that the FCC has the authority under Title I to continue regulating. Now, sure, they can't do it in this way, but in this way is not what gives rise to conflict preemption. The FCC doesn't have to say, I mean, let me back up, of course, if the FCC had thought that the best way to protect the internet, encourage broadband deployment, make sure the internet was open, was common carrier rules, the FCC had statutory authority to do that. The DC circuit had affirmed it. Nothing in the 2018 order suggests otherwise. But the FCC concluded that that was affirmatively harmful and unnecessary. And the three years that we lived under the 2018 order, and we continue to live in it in virtually every state outside of California, shows that that decision 
has proved to be correct. California says we can challenge that as arbitrary and capricious, we can lose, and then we can adopt a position that the D.C. Circuit Majority said was a straw man, that nonetheless this opens the door for us to do to the same service the same things. And this court's decision in California says that's wrong. The D.C. Circuit's decision in Mozilla says that it did not decide that that decision within its statutory authority lacks conflict preemptive effect. All right, you've exceeded your time. Do, do my colleagues have any other questions? All right, I thank counsel for your helpful arguments in this um, significant case. We will take what you've said under advisement, and this case will be under advisement.